Our first reading is from Ezekiel chapter 47, verses 1 to 12, and can be found on page 881 in the Church Bible. The man brought me back to the entrance to the temple, and I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple towards the east, for the temple faced east. The water was coming down from the south side of the temple, south of the altar. He then brought me out through the north gate and led me round the outside to the outer gate facing east, and the water was trickling from the south side. As the man went eastward with a measuring line in his hand, he measured out, he measured off a thousand cubits, and then led me through the water that was ankle deep. He measured off another thousand cubits, and led me through the water that was knee deep. He measured off another thousand, and led me through water that was up to the waist. He measured off another thousand, but now it was a river that I could not cross, because the water had risen and was deep enough to swim in, a river that no one could cross. He asked me, Son of man, do you see this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. When I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river. He said to me, This water flows towards the eastern river, eastern region and goes down into the Araba, where it enters the Dead Sea. When it empties into the sea, the salty water there becomes fresh. Swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. There will be a large numbers of fish because the water flows there and makes the salt water fresh. So where the river flows, everything will live. Fishermen will stand along the shore from En Gedi to En Eglem. There will be places for spreading nets. The fish will be of many kinds, like the fish of the Mediterranean Sea. But the swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They will be left for salt. Fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail. Every month they will bear fruit, because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. Their fruit will serve for food, and their leaves for healing. The second reading is from John chapter 7, verses 25 to 52, and can be found on page 1072 in the Church Bible. Point, some, pe- some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, Isn't this the man they are trying to kill? Here he is, speaking publicly, and they are not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Messiah? But we know where this man is from. When the Messiah comes, no one will know where he is from. Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, Yes, you know me, and you know where I am from. I am not here on my own authority. But he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him, because I am from him, and he sent me. At this they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Still, many in the crowd believed in him. They said, When the Messiah comes, will he perform more signs than this man? The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. Jesus said, I am with you for only a short time, and then I am going to be the one I am going to the one who sent me. 
You will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? Will he go where our people live scattered among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What did he mean when he said, You will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. On hearing his words, some of the people said, Surely this man is the prophet. Others said, He is the Messiah. Still others asked, How can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus the people were were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees, who asked them, Why didn't you bring him in? No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guard replied. You mean he has deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted. Have any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed in him? No, but this mob that knows nothing of the law, there is a curse on them. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who, had, and who was one of their own number, asked, Does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he has been doing? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Look into it, and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. Thanks, Phoebe, for reading. Good evening, everyone. As we start, um, let me just ask you to think for a moment. Think of a few things that you'd struggle to live without. Just give you a second to think. Don't know what's on your list, but it probably says quite a lot about you. I know mine does. What would I struggle to live without? Coffee? Sausages? Strange one. Uh, My phone? Or, more seriously, my family? My work? the approval of other people. Your list says a lot about you. But what wasn't on my list, of course, would be the number one for millions of people in our world. Water. Yes, sure, I I know it's important, but it's just there, isn't it? Whenever I turn on the tap, so I never really think about it how much I need it. And what would happen if it suddenly ran out? Earlier this year in Cape Town, South Africa, in the middle of a severe drought, the government was planning for just that scenario, for what it called day zero, the day when there'd be no more water. You turn on the tap, but nothing. 
This is the question that dominates my waking hours, the mayor of Cape Town wrote back in January. When day zero comes, how do we prevent anarchy? Because the mayor saw what I never really even stopped to think about, that if the water runs out, then life unravels. That water is quite literally a matter of life and death. And unless I get that, I think I'll miss the urgency of Jesus' words here tonight, particularly in verses 37 and 38 of our reading. Jesus, he's in Jerusalem at the Jewish festival of tabernacles, the big event of the Jewish calendar, where each year people flock to the city to spend a week remembering what they couldn't live without. So they build themselves shelters of branches and leaves. Why? Well, to recall the time when their ancestors had been homeless, wandering in the desert, and they'd been literally, they'd have literally died a first without the faithful, miraculous provision of God who had brought rivers of water gushing from a rock to meet their needs. And the people did this each year at harvest time. Because in an arid farming country like Israel, water was still, very obviously, a matter of life and death. And so Tabernacles was there to remind them of the God that they still desperately needed. The source and sustainer of their existence, who'd faithfully provided the water of life then, and who they still needed to provide it now, to send the rain to water the ground, to grow the crops, the God without whom life would unravel. And Jesus is here at the Festival of Tabernacles, and people are trying to work him out. We saw that, didn't we, at the start of our passage. All those questions, speculation about him is reaching fever pitch. And the religious authorities, they're so disturbed by it, that in verse 32, they send the temple guards to arrest him, to silence him. Only Jesus won't be silenced. Instead, he stands up, and there, in the midst of this festival, he says something quite astounding. Something that is quite literally a matter of life and death. So we're going to look at it together for a few minutes. We're going to zoom in particularly on those verses, verses 37 to 39. And I've got four headings to help us as we do that. So first, let's look at Jesus' claim of life. The big moment during the Festival of Tabernacles came with a water-pouring ceremony, where each day the priests would fill a golden jug with water, Fill it from the pool of Siloam and then process with that water all the way back up the hill to the temple. And there, in front of everyone, pour the water out. Reminding the people that God alone gives the water of life. And it's there, verse 37 tells us, on the last and greatest day of the festival... 
after the people had seen this water pouring day after day, there on the final climactic day, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. And it's scandalous, an astonishing thing for Jesus to say, to to grab the limelight like this at this moment, to make that water pouring, to make the whole festival that is all about God, suddenly and shockingly all about him. To stand there and make the outrageous claim to be the real source of life-sustaining water. Just who does Jesus think he is? I mean, is he delusional, unhinged, or is he just appallingly arrogant, self-obsessed, needing to make everything all about him? You you probably know a few people like that, don't you? People who who need to be noticed, who who need to be the centre of attention. And we recoil from people like that, don't we? Because, well, behaving like that, it's ugly. It's wrong. Only sometimes, just occasionally, it's beautifully right. How about this? You're a guest at a wedding, all dressed up, sitting there in church, waiting for things to get going. And suddenly the bride arrives. Conversation stop. People stand and there she is. White dress. Slowly walking up the aisle. Claiming the attention of everyone in the building. And at that moment, you're not thinking, what a cheek. Coming in like that, who does she think she is? You're not thinking that. If you are, you probably shouldn't be invited to many weddings. But you're not thinking that. You're thinking, yes. Because this is the one we've been waiting for. This is what the whole celebration is all about. So it's not arrogance. It's not ego. It's right. It's fitting at that moment that all eyes are on the bride. And Jesus' words here, they are outrageous unless, well, unless he's the one that we've been waiting for, the one that it's all been about. Unless this whole festival, all the ritual, all the ceremony, this is what it's been preparing people for all along. Unless Jesus really is, as he's been telling the crowds throughout this chapter, the one who has been sent The one who suddenly, after all the waiting, is here. And so rightly, fittingly, all attention must turn to him. The Festival of Tabernacles was all about coming back to the God who provides. The God we can't live without. And so Jesus standing there and saying, come to me, making the whole thing all about him, it is outrageous unless the whole thing is all about him, unless the provider, the sustainer, the giver of life himself really has suddenly arrived on the scene. 
It's a shocking thought. Maybe you're here tonight and you're still puzzling this Jesus through. But do you see, if this is true, then how we respond to him really is a matter of life and death. So then come to a second point, a thirst for life. Because who's Jesus speaking to here? Who, who's he calling out to in the listening crowd and maybe in this room tonight? Anyone who is thirsty. Verse 37 again. Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Which begs the question, doesn't it? Are you thirsty? Not in the sense of, well, I hope service finishes quickly, quite like a cup of tea in a few minutes, but are you thirsty as, as Jesus means it here? And, and would you know if you are? Think of it this way. What does thirst look like? It struck me over the summer. Thirst is brown. If you were here in the, the UK this past summer, now I know it feels like quite a distant memory now, doesn't it? But, but remember back, if you can, to those long weeks of hot, dry weather, day after day after day. And remember how everything looked? Brown. All brown. Lawns, verges, parks. As the weeks went on and no rain fell everywhere you looked, brown. Parched earth, brown grass, dying without water. And of course, well, this is England, isn't it? So didn't last long. After a few weeks, the rain starts falling again. The green comes back. But in many places, it doesn't happen. The drought is much worse. The, so the brown, it lasts far longer. That's the case, for example, in some parts of the United States. But don't worry, because some clever people there have solved the problem of brown grass. Here it is. You just paint it green. It's ingenious, isn't it? You paint it green. But it's also bizarre. Sure, I'm, I'm sure that spray-painted lawns, they look lovely on the surface. And I'm sure all the neighbours do gaze on enviously. Oh, look at their green grass. But underneath, it's well hidden, it's covered over, nothing's really changed, has it? The grass is just the same, still dried up, still dying of thirst. And when we come to consider what Jesus is talking about here, not physical thirst, but something much deeper and much more dangerous, spiritual thirst, an inner spiritual dehydration, we need to be careful that we don't dismiss it. We don't walk past it and think, oh, he's not talking to me. I'm fine. Because the Bible says we are all spiritually thirsty people. That our hearts are made for God and the life that he provides. But that we've all turned away from him. The life 
sustaining water. And so our hearts, they're like that grass. They're brown. And one day, all of us will die of thirst. But too often, we don't see it. Because our world is in the spray painting business. Getting us to spend our time spraying the grass green. Spraying it with the green paint of success. Those exam results. That academic recognition. Our successful career. Our important role at church. Or the green paint of relationships. The perfect partner, the perfect family, the ping of approval on social media, the people who like us, who look up to us, who need us, or paint of distraction, that next box set, that next Black Friday order, that next drink, that next click of the mouse in the dark. We all do it. I do it. You do it. We spray the grass green. Convince ourselves, convince other people that everything's fine. And you know, we look admiringly, we look enviously at each other's painted lawns. But under the surface, still brown, we're still thirsty. And the paint, it rarely lasts, so we keep needing a respray. Because grass isn't meant to be painted. And neither are thirsty souls. Our thirst for life will never be quenched by any of those things. As so often, C.S. Lewis, I think, captures this perfectly. Listen to this. He says, If we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. So what's Jesus' alternative? Well, look at verse 38. Jesus said, Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. What does parched, brown, thirsty ground really need? Not paint. It needs water, loads of it, pouring out over all the dryness, giving it the refreshment and the life that it most needs. And that's what Jesus promises. If we'll recognize our thirst and come to him, water, living water, overflowing with life and vitality. Not a trickle, not a dribble, but a great surging river of it. And did you notice that little phrase, as Scripture has said? Because Jesus wants the crowd here at this festival to realize that this river is what God's been promising all along. Where the great sweep of Scripture has all been pointing. At the festival of tabernacles, at that water-pouring ceremony, people were looking back to the river of God's past provision when he made water gush out of a rock to meet their thirst in the desert. But they were also looking forward to another, much greater river, the river of God's future promise. We saw it earlier 
in our reading from Ezekiel 47. Spoken by God to his desperate people, living far from him in exile. A promise that one day God would do something new. That a river of water would come gushing out from a new temple. The place of God's perfect presence right there with them again. And Ezekiel tells us this. That where the river flows, everything will live. Drought over, everything utterly transformed. And it goes on, fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail. Every month they will bear fruit, because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. Do you see what's being promised? What our hearts thirst for. Another world. A new creation. A day when all drought will be over. No more grass painting. No more thirst. No more death. A place of abundant life, of unending fruitfulness. Month after month after month. All springing from this river of life. And, says Jesus here, that new, thirstless world, it's on its way. In fact, it's beginning to break in now in the lives of those who believe in him. Because notice where Jesus says this river will flow. Look at verse 38 again. From within them. From inside of people like you and me. Literally, from the belly. The bit of us the bit of us that needs filling, the, the place where all our thirsting begins, gushing up from there with the beginnings of this abundant life, which will go on forever. A river which John makes clear in verse 39 is the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. And that's Jesus' astounding offer to every person here. God's spirit, God's own presence and life at work within us to quench our thirst. Not to fix every problem, not to guarantee us some kind of trouble-free life, but to fill us and begin to transform us now, just as he will one day fill and transform his whole new creation And then see finally what it costs Jesus to give us this life. Take a look at the Pharisees at the end of our passage. They don't want to know, do they? When the temple guards return without Jesus in chains because they're, they're too stunned by his words. No one ever talked like this man. The Pharisees are furious. So they lash out at everyone within range. The guards get it, the crowd gets it, even Nicodemus who puts up his hand to ask a question, he gets it. They all get savaged because the Pharisees do not want to hear it. Because Jesus' words here, this promise of living water, well, it's a threat. It threatens to expose them, to reveal how brown and desiccated, how thirsty their own hearts really are. And they won't have it. 
And you know, naturally, neither will we. We're no different. Naturally, we'd spend our whole lives rejecting the water of life, painting our lawns, and preferring to die of spiritual thirst without him. Unless, well, unless we can be rescued from ourselves. And that's where I think John points us at the end of verse 39. Up to that time, the spirit, John says, had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. You know, don't you, that all the way through John's gospel, the clock is ticking. Did you hear it ticking earlier in verse 30? When, despite the growing hostility to Jesus, John tells us no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. And then again in verse 33, as Jesus tells them, I'm only with you for a short time. And they haven't a clue what he means. But John wants us to know the clock is counting down to the hour, this hour, where Jesus will be glorified. And where does it happen? At the least glorious hour imaginable, at the cross. As the Pharisees' furious rejection of Jesus finally boils over and Jesus is arrested and tried and crucified in agony. And John wants us to be totally clear. It's not a mistake. It's where God's rescue plan has always been heading. The cross is Jesus' hour, where Jesus' glory is displayed and where the cost of life is fully paid. Just listen to what happens as Jesus hangs there, dying. John chapter 19, verse 28. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. And later, as Jesus hangs there, dead, John tells us, One of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. And we're not meant to miss this. Because here at the cross, as the hour of Jesus' glory comes, what does John want us to see? That the water is flowing. Flowing from the one who is quite literally here, dying of thirst. The deepest deadliest spiritual thirst. Jesus day zero as he is cut off from the living water of God the Father and he dies in the place of people like you and like me. People who again and again stubbornly push away the God who alone can satisfy. And so he dies there to rescue us from ourselves. Dies of thirst So we don't have to. And as we see him there, come to do what only he can, we see, well, it's not outrageous arrogance, is it? It's extravagant love. As he pays the cost of life. And as we see that, so our hard, stubborn hearts, they can be changed. And we can believe and we can come 
to him and quench our thirst from that river of abundant life. So, as I finish, let me ask, will, will you see him there doing that for you, dying of thirst for you, and will you come and drink? Come and put your trust in this Jesus. Come, maybe for the very first time, finally willing to admit your thirst. Or come again, because you know how much you need him, and you're thirsty for more of the life that he offers. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, what amazing, astounding love this is, that, that you know us, that you know what we're like, that you know what our hearts are like, you know how they thirst. And Lord, how you know that we'd never come to you unless you came to us, unless you came and died on a cross, unless you died of thirst, so that we don't have to. Lord God, how amazing this is. How we thank you for who you are and for what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.